Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. And here we are with show number 13, lucky number 13. And purely by coincidence, today we have two giants of fantasy fiction in one show, Janny Wirtz and Gene Wolfe. So, sit back, relax, pick up that drink at your elbow, open your ears, and let's have some fun. Our first story today is a great tale by Janny Wirtz called Blood Oak Iron. For most fantasy aficionados, Ms. Wirtz needs little introduction. Her current audiobook titles include Standalone's Master of Whitestorm, Sorcerer's Legacy and the Cycle of Fire trilogy, and the Empire trilogy written in collaboration with Raymond E. Feist. In print, a standalone fantasy to ride Hell's Chasm, and the Wars of Light and Shadow series. Her imaginative paintings and cover art have appeared in exhibitions of imaginative artwork, among them NASA's 25th anniversary exhibit, Delaware Art Museum, Canton Art Museum, and Hayden Planetarium in New York, and been recognized by two Chesley Awards and three times received Best of Show at the World Fantasy Convention. Story excerpts, announcements, and print shop can be found by following the link on our Triple F website. The story is narrated for you today by Mark Nelson, also known as Harry Shaw. Mark has been recording audiobooks since 2006, starting as a LibriVox volunteer and later for such producers as Audible, Audible Frontiers, Hachette, Wonder Audio and Iambic. Recording as Mark Nelson and as Harry Shaw, he's narrated more than 50 commercial audiobooks, including classics, horror, mysteries and contemporary and classic science fiction. He still regularly contributes to LibriVox, which he credits for getting him out of human resources and into something useful. 
visit his website at markdouglasnelson.com. Thanks for the read today, Mark. So, without any further fanfare, here is Blood, Oak, Iron by Jenny Wirtz. The old king of Chowder lay dying. Everyone knew. Scarcely anyone cared. He lay under quilts in a bed with gold posts and purple hangings, his waxy cadaverous face throwing grotesque shadows by the guttering flare of the candles. Whole seconds passed while his unsteady breath seemed to stop. Such times the man who kept vigil at the bedside would lean close, a hand weathered brown from the bridle rein reaching out to clasp the skeletal wrist that rested limp on the coverlet. I am here, he murmured softly. I'll see you don't die in the dark. More minutes would pass while the candle flames bent in the drafts and the autumn winds rattled the casements. The trace scent of frost would knife through the close air, displacing its burden of unguents and tisans and the decayed must of age and sickness. The old king never moved. His eggshell lids did not open. Finlair, who was the only legitimate royal son, would arise at measured intervals. Only lately aware that he was a prince in line for Chalder's succession, he took no joy from the prospect. He was a tall man, long-strided, clothed still in a forester's leather, and his face wore the lines of a nearsighted squint. He replenished the wicks as they flickered and drowned. Then he laced patient knuckles in his salt-stranded hair and tried not to think of the dark that hemmed the wavering circles of light cast over the patterned carpet. The old king might have been unloved, but his suite was no less than lavish. Throughout his long life, his attendants and counselors had served his needs out of fear. Now that he lay dying, they waited and whispered of uncanny powers and the curse that held him in possession. Abroad in the fields, simple country folk gathered the grain shocks for threshing. The annual harvest would follow its rhythm, despite the imminent change in succession. The lands of Chalder were reasonably prosperous. Its people were submissive, but not starving. Kings were crowned, and kings passed away. But the shadow behind the power that governed the realm had not changed for three thousand years. The ancient bargain with the fiend would prevail, folk said. Never mind that Prince Finlair had been raised in lands far away, had never since he was a speechless infant inhabited the realm that his birthright destined him to inherit. Once the incumbent king died, and before the new one was crowned, the curse that burdened the royal line would claim its uncanny due. The heir was doomed to be claimed by the wraith, with the Chancellor and the King's Council of Chalder left to keep what peace they could under the terms of a horrific bargain. Another dawn paled the sky through the casement. Crows soared across sunrise, like scraps of black rag. They perched on the battlements and raised raucous complaint on the hour that Finlair arose. He snuffed out all but four of the candles. Then he moved in his woodsman's quiet to the doorway, where he raised word to summon the servants. 
he stayed as they unlocked and unbarred the oak panel. A lean shadow braced against the armoire. He watched, his hands crossed at his belt, beside the empty scabbard of the knife he no longer wore at his hip. If the course his own fate must take was prescribed, he could still insist that his dying liege was attended with kindness and decency. When the sheets had been changed and the king's withered flesh was resettled under the blankets in comfort, Finlair returned to the bedside. He kissed the cheek of the father he had never known, who was now too far gone to exchange any word with a son born after the curse had overwhelmed his last human awareness. Then Finlair left, to spend the day in the palace library, poring over record scrolls and dusty piles of books. In the afternoon, his uncle Guriman found him asleep, his cheek and the knuckles of one strong hand pillowed on the pages of Chalder's bygone history. With his broad, outdoorsman's shoulders and his forearms tucked like a cat's, Finlaire seemed relaxed, but never innocuous. You aren't going to find any answers, Guriman said, his fish-pale elegance clothed in ribbon velvets and his girlish lisp a disquieting affection for a man more than five decades old. Finlaire opened his eyes, which were limpid as slate in a stream bed. He straightened up. Not a muscle in his rangy frame tightened, but the stillness about him acquired the poise of a fully drawn bow. He regarded the soft uncle, whose mounted henchman had run him to earth like an animal one day a fortnight past. His wrists underneath his chamois cuffs were still raw from his struggles, as men-at-arms he did not know had bundled him into a carriage and borne him to Chalder, trust and furious. They had hauled him into the palace and offered him meat and a bed, and called him Your Grace and Prince. His bonds had been cut since. But he was kept as close as a prisoner, and liveried crossbowmen flanked him wherever he went. As they did now, in deferent quiet, one pair ranked at each end of the table. Others stood guard at the doorway. Their vigilance brightened like heat off stirred embers as Finlair locked eyes with the uncle he had only just learned he possessed. Where another man might have railed or cursed, the forester preferred to say nothing. A lifetime of setting snares for shy animals had taught him unbreakable patience. Why trouble yourself? Gurman ventured at last. He fingered a scroll with a pallid hand, his nails clean as a pampered woman's. The king will die. As the closest male heir in line for the throne, the fiend of Chalder will have you. Why waste your last days of awareness digging in vain through old books? You have little time. While your mind's still your own, I could send you a virgin girl to give you an hour of pleasure. You could unlock the doors, Finlair said. Oh, no. To let you go would be utterly wasteful. Gurman gave the scroll a contemptuous flick. The parchment rolled the width of the table and bumped against the jumble of manuscripts already searched and discarded. I spent too many years keeping track of your whereabouts. Damn your mother to the nethermost hell pit for thinking to spare you from your fate. You will not escape, or shirk your crown, or hide in the obscurity of a commoner's lifestyle. 
Finlair glanced down, once more absorbed by the pages he had been reading. His stilled face suggested that antagonistic uncles and poised men-at-arms and locked doors were of little more moment than dust to the waters of a creek. Yet in the pale sunlight warming the table, his hands had closed into fists. As though that small sign of frustration scratched an itch, Gurriman shifted his weight from one slippered foot to the other. I could recite you the history you're seeking. The bad bargain struck by your ancestor has granted the fiend a new body for each generation in perpetuity. Its wraith will enslave the closest male relative as each possessed sovereign departs. You are the king's son. Your lot is cast. There will be no reprieve. Why should you not savor the time you have left? Trust me in this. Each one of your forebears has searched this library before you. Not one in a hundred doomed generations found any means to keep the fiend from its promised binding. Finlair refused answer. In baiting that blank wall of resistance, even Gurman found little sport. If the books held no clues, this prince made it plain. He would comb through their pages again. He had no use for wealth or a ruler's inheritance. The crossbowman watched his deliberate calm and did not find him complacent. Fenlair did not rage at his straits. Whatever vile promise his progenitor had made, whatever the downfall that claimed each descendant, the fiend's displaced wraith would not take him willing. You'll succumb, Gurman insisted at length. You'll find no help for yourself in the past, though you blind yourself reading old manuscripts. And sundown approached, like spite itself. Persistence wrung no secret from the crumbling books. Finlair stood up to the prod of his jailers and stretched aching shoulders and longed for the grace of his yew-bow and his hunter's quiver of arrows. He was a man accustomed to venison roasted over an outdoor spit. The rich supper Gurman's lackeys brought did nothing but sour his stomach. Tonight he spurned the overcooked meal. On a servant's brown bread and a pitcher of water, he would stand the night's vigil alongside his dying father. The hours of darkness descended again, marked and measured by the arrhythmic whisper of the failing king's breath. Finlair paced to stay wakeful. He tended the candles and leaned on the wall by the tower's iron-barred casement. He had no sharp object to free the jammed catch. A crack in the glass let in the outdoors. Drawing in the chill autumn air, Finlair listened to the mournful chime of a cowbell, wind-borne from some crofter's pasture. From the turret below he caught snatches of coarse laughter or yells of triumph as one of the soldiers on watch won at knuckle-bones or dice. The gust sifted dry leaves across the starlit bailey, while the frost etched its hoary fingerprints over the runners of ivy latched to the outside sill. Finlair rested his forehead upon his closed fist. Weariness sucked him too hollow for sleep. He suffered the enclosed suffocation of walls with senses that felt silted and dull. Yet the passion burned in him, bright as pain itself. Longing seared every nerve to rebellion. There was an indelible part of his spirit that would not accept his imprisonment. The heart that belonged to the open forest 
could not be resigned to the usage of Chowder's wraith. Absorbed by the clean, white rise of the moon, Finn Lair almost forgot his surroundings. If not for the hideous, ongoing need to keep track of the dying king's breaths, he might not have noticed the muted rasp as furtive fingers lifted the door-latch. The brush of changed air against his nape aroused all his woodsman's instincts. Spurred to action, he whirled about. His reach for his knife met an empty sheath and frustration. Past salvage, his peril was upon him. The assassin launched through the bank of lit candles. Through the winnowed streamers of flame, Finlaire saw his form as a hurtling shadow the instant before he struck. Then a muscled, panting body slammed into him, bent on choking his life with a garrote. Finlaire entangled his fist in the string before it looped tight around his throat. Slammed backward, he struck the wall. A tapestry ripped from its looped rings. His grunt mingled with the killer's snarl of frustration. Their locked struggle toppled them both to the floor. Rolling and kicking and gouging for purchase, they tumbled across the rucked wool. Their battering progress swept over the rug and smashed through table and basin and towel racks. A scatter of overset candles crashed in a flying spray of spilled wax. Fidler closed his hand on a billet of split wood, then used that at need to belabor his opponent. He knew where to strike to stun a trapped lynx. To subdue a man the same way fairly sickened him. The assailant dropped, limp but unhurt. Finlayer recoiled back to his feet. Bent double, retching, he rushed the breach door. There his armed sentries were now lying senseless, most likely drugged with a potion. Yet before he won clear, his chance to seize freedom was torn from his grasp once again. More men arrived and charged over the threshold. These bore him down with battering fists. The matchstick of wood he had snatched for a weapon proved no use against mail and steel helmets. Finlayer fought as the fox set upon by the pack, beyond every rational hope. Yet numbers prevailed. Slammed dizzy and bleeding, he lay under the weight of his captors, breathing hard. A man with a sword stepped into the corridor and dispatched the incapable bowman. The ugly sound of their dying reached Finlayer. He shouted his astonished protest, the more horrified as he realized the unconscious assassin would be just as callously executed. Shut up, you! When he shouted again, he found himself served with a kick in the belly. After that, Finlayer could do nothing at all but curl up and be wretchedly sick. Later, propped up in a chair, with the abraded burns from the garrote a livid welt on his hand, he held his body tenderly still to quell the ache of his bruises. When Gurman arrived to inspect him and gloat, he had no inclination to speak. The smell of fresh death and old incense and medicine befouled the closed room, until he could wish to stop breathing. On the bed, the dying king rasped, inhale to exhale, while beyond the barred glass the stars slowly turned, serene in their timeless courses. "'Why did you not let the paid killer take you?' Guriman said, almost taunting. He approached in his beautiful brocade robe, careful to avoid the befouled carpet. The creature was hired by my bitterest rival, or did you not know? 
Finlaire's quiet awareness itself framed reply. He might be a stranger, unused to court ways, and the poisonous whispers of intrigue. Men might lie to themselves, caught up by ambition and their secretive, grasping desires. Yet a huntsman could recognize the hierarchy of wolf packs. Greed and avarice showed in the glitter of men's eyes. Such bitter jealousies could be sensed, and the smoldering envy of those who coveted Gurriman's power as chancellor, the dominance and control that would divide all the world into the strong and the weak, with the forceful set over the cowed and the frightened. Poor Craven, mused Gurriman. Too soft or too simple to let go when you're beaten. If you had died before the old king, the fiend would be left to claim your next of kin. By default, the curse would have fallen on me. Where is your regret, your hour of contrition? Your end could have bought a crude victory. No victory that matters, Finlaire rasped, his throat sore. No more would he say beyond that. Eyes shut, he dreamed of green foliage, and of the roe deer grazing snug in their moonlit glens. Gurriman grew bored. He departed before long, appointing more trustworthy men-at-arms to redouble their guard at the doorway. Barred inside, Finlaire was left to his solitary vigil alongside the dying king. There was no sense of peace in the bony, still face on the pillow, no thoughts in that skull worth expressing, no work for the hands that lay childishly soft but age-spotted against silken coverlets. The oblivion inflicted by Childer's fiend did not instill beauty with quietude. Life expended its vigor, robbed of its self-awareness, and without the innate, purposeful dignity alive in the simplest tree. Finlaire tried and failed to encompass a concept that escaped definition of loss. His hurts kept him wakeful without need to pace. Throughout the crawling hours of night, he nursed his thrashed flesh and attended the damaged stubs of the candles. The flames he kept burning shone bright and ephemeral, no less short-lived than the stifled existence he refused out of hand to accept. But when the stars paled, the old king was still breathing. As though human will, through no mind of its own, fought the wraith's passage to its next host through the blank urge of bodily reflex. When the raw crimson dawn streaked the sky past the casement, Finlaire pinched out the wicks one by one. As morning arrived, servants came and relieved him, to endure through the day until sundown. By now gritty-eyed and aching tired, and wasted from the aftermath of nausea, Finlaire could not face another hour indoors. If he must sleep, he would choose a place where Gurriman's penchant for comfort would be most inconvenienced if he came to gloat. The battlements between the wind-rate keeps were chilly enough, but the guardsmen blocked Finlaire's access. They refused him passage to the outer wall, no matter which portal he tried. "'Can't let you jump,' the armed captain said gruffly. "'We've got orders. Your life's to be guarded.' The bailey proved to be off-limits as well, as to open a venue for assassins. "'Last night's attempt won't happen again,' puffed the bowman who tagged at his heels, not pleased to be led on a pointless chase up and down tower stairwells. 
Why not accept what can never be changed? Another man added, The greater good of the kingdom demands that the fiend must be given its victim. Finlaire stopped. He turned his head, his gray eyes wide open. I'm no man's puppet, he told them. His guardsmen exchanged dour glances and shrugged. The future was nothing if not inevitable. The terms of the curse would not be thwarted. The fiend would devour Finlaire's awareness and inhabit the shell of his body, while Gurman ruled, secure in his post as king's chancellor. You know the old fox has planned this for years. He's learned the hard way how to keep the fiend in a state of sated stupor. Why care in the end? Your mind will be gone. If young children die screaming to feed your damned flesh, why should their suffering matter? The countryside will not be scourged through another reign of terror. For the sacrifice of an innocent few, the fiend's hunger can be constrained. For all our sakes, should your subjects not have the semblance of their prosperity? Paid for, at what cost? Finlaire shook his head. But the guards, to a man, looked on without pity. You don't realize the horrific bloodbath your destined end will prevent. I do, Finlaire rebutted. He had read the records. Year upon year, the graphic account had been kept by Chalder's historians, a sorrowful toll of red slaughter set down in lines of immutable ink. Finlaire descended another steep staircase, while his armed wardens crowded at his heels. After a long bout of pacing through corridors and trying numerous forbidden doors, he encountered the cramped courtyard which adjoined the Queen's abandoned apartments. The walled garden enclosed a cracked fountain, choked with the yellowed curls of willow leaves. Wind sifted a fine drizzle over the bent stems in the flower beds. Amid tangled weeds, a few hardy chrysanthemums raised blossoms of delicate purple. Half smothered in snarls of bittersweet vine, the black strands of yew wore their poisonous yield of red berries. While the men-at-arms grumbled and huddled under the arched portal to forestall the chance to escape, Finlaire walked the puddled pathways. He paused under the bulk of an ancient oak. The crabbed branches were tagged with bedraggled leaves, brown and sickened with galls. The scaled metal of a circular bench girdled the massive trunk. Time and age had expanded the tree's girth, until the collar of ornamental scrollwork had dug in like a shackle. The once graceful tracery of the wrought iron had been swallowed into the bulging, scabrous bark. Finlaire traced his straight fingers over the wound, moved to pity. For how many generations had Chalder's indifferent royal gardeners disregarded the tormented oak's plight? If I'd stood in my forefather's place with a chisel, I would have spared you this misery, Finlaire told the tree's hobbled spirit. No remedy could lift the affliction now. The iron was too deeply embedded to excise without destroying the life of the tree. A breeze ruffled through the leaves overhead. Droplets spilled down like cold tears. The morbid thought stirred within Finlaire's mind that his father suffered a similar blight. He had been throttled while still alive by the unnatural compulsions imposed by a fiend. Yet what axe in the world would cut through a binding curse, 
and what tool could rend the insubstantial blight of a wraith? Distraught with sadness, Finlayer sat with his back braced against the wounded tree. For a helpless interval, he sought the illusion of oblivion behind his shuttered eyelids. Exhaustion overcame him. He slept, while the rain fell and beaded his hair and slicked over his weathered features. The dream came upon him unaware. Its texture spun from the sorrowful thread that shaped his enclosed surroundings. He remained within the queen's ruined garden, amid the sere heads of dead flowers, while the drifts of dry-rotted leaves moldered under the tired oak. The rough bark rasped through the leathers on his back. His feet slowly chilled in his deer-hide boots, and his hands nestled loose in his lap. Skin, bone, wood, and pith, he melted into the oak tree. The rusted bench kept its strangling grip on the bowl, and gradually, over the passage of years, the metal artistry wrought by the smith came to fetter his ankles. He cried from the pain, perhaps as the tree had, voiceless and mute in its agony. None heard. No one came. His legs ached from the pressure. His shins gained weeping sores that scabbed over, transformed into welted scars that paralyzed tissue and tendon. Had he been a red-blooded animal so deformed, a kind man would have dealt him a mercy stroke. No such simple expedient was shown to the tree. Shackled in metal, impaired beyond healing, Finlayer ached beyond bearing for loss. The trees and his own, for a natural freedom imprisoned and twisted by force. Endurance remained. The tree had not died, though the iron bench girdled it. For three thousand years, Chalder's cursed royal line had bound over the lives of its sacrificed princes. Dreaming, Finlay received the unfolding awareness that the oak tree knew all their names. He shared the defeated vision of his predecessors, of strong men who had failed, of kings who had died by their own hand, and so condemned their sons or their brothers, the kings who had tried blinding or maiming a limb on the chance that the wraith might reject a flawed vessel, and perhaps move on to roost elsewhere. He knew the fear of the desperately craven, and the seizing terror of others whose hearts had stopped, unable to withstand the uneasy nights of the vigil. He dreamed of men who had fled, and men who had killed their own fathers in ritual, seeking to destroy Chalder's fiend. He knew the wise men, and their desperate seeking, reduced to vanquished despair. One after the next, Finlayer saw the sad ghosts whose joy and whose laughter had been robbed by the curse that hounded Chalder's royal lineage. "'You will follow in our footsteps,' they said, weeping the tears of the ages. "'Like us, you will have no choice at the end. Your sire will die, and you will be left to suffer the next chapter of a blighted legacy.' Bound to the oak's memory, Finlayer saw the changing loom of the garden spin its tapestry of four seasons. Under spring moonlight, he watched generations of Chalder's jeweled courtiers dance by torchlight or embrace as young lovers under the tree. Their lives seemed more fleeting than those of the moths, which circled the torch flames in blinded frenzy. He witnessed the night 
when his mother had given her promise to his lost father, that she would flee the realm and bear the king's child in secret, then foster him into a commoner's home to be raised in nameless obscurity. There is endurance in oak and cold iron and blood. The voice was a woman's, and faint as the whisper of leaves brushed by a passing breeze. A seed's urge to grow is rooted and fixed, but a man is born gifted with movement and choice. Why has your lineage begotten its sons? Why has each one bequeathed a doomed child one generation after another? Hope, Finlair murmured in dreaming reply. The one word contained all the treasure he knew, the green scent of balsam, which had infused the peace and boundless beauty that lived in the summer wood. He offered that grave like a flawless jewel to the heart of the crippled tree. Soon after that he opened his eyes to gray mist. His leathers had soaked in the icy drizzle. He felt gritty, used up, and the chill of the rainfall had sunk through to his bones. The neglected garden held nothing but puddles, each reflecting the moss-grown walls, the cracked stone of the fountain, and the tangle of weed-choked flower-beds. Yet standing, attuned to a forester's instincts, Finlair sensed that he was no longer alone. An oak-leaf winnowed down and feathered his cheek like the brush of a withered finger. He followed its spiraling flight toward the ground, then noticed the acorn he had missed before, on the flagstone next to his boot. He picked it up. Hope lay within its hardened shell, the unfulfilled promise of a fresh start, and the latent dream of a seedling that might sprout and grow without any hindrance or boundary. Finlair tucked the acorn into his pocket. While his uncle's vigilant guards barred the door, the withered leaf settled, trembling. The king will die tonight, Gurman said, while outside the glass casements, clouds banked and gathered, and lightning flared on the horizon. The vigil has lasted for seven days, and the fiend has taken your measure. Are you certain you don't wish me to send you a woman? This may be the last chance you have in this world to savor a human comfort. No. Finlair stood with his back to the wall while the candles around the king's bed were lit one by one by a liveried servant. I will get you no air. In his hardened fist, clenched over the acorn, he had all the comfort he wanted. Gurman shrugged. Such scruple you have. But the gesture is meaningless. I have sons aplenty. The unlucky eldest will inherit the curse. He, or one of his grandsons, will be alive to receive the fiend's wraith when you finally succumb to old age. Finlair had nothing to say. No last wishes, prodded Gurman. No bequests? No noble words for your subjects? His lightless, pale eyes flicked over the tall forester, who held his stilled ground in the corner. Well, then, suit yourself. Once the old king is dead and you are possessed, I will return with a living child. You won't be so calm or so reticent then, as you murder to satisfy the fiend's appetite. Then Lair gripped the acorn. 
unlike a man, an unquickened seed could not know the cruelty of anticipation. Its natural being did not encompass the concept of futility or abject despair. A man, trapped to face the descent of the dark, could do little but cling to the undefiled stillness of silence. Soon enough, Gurman grew restless, and he left. Finlaire remained behind the locked door, with the dying king and the flames of the candles, and the wind-driven rain beating the barred glass of the casements. Darkness descended, thick as a pall, while the storm gathered force and the gust shrilled over the tower stonework. Thunder growled and hammered the air, and lightning cracked over the battlements. Inside the locked chamber, like the hush of held breath, the Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dread hour approached when the fiend would spin free of its housing of flesh and lay claim to its next hapless bearer. The release that drew nigh brought the old king no peace. He thrashed, moaning, and plucking at his sheets as though fighting the wraith that had ravaged him. As though he knew his ending approached, with the spirit left holding its vile burden of murder and the cheated waste of a lifetime. Finlaire moved then. He could not ignore suffering. He collected the frail, icy hands of his father. Using the tone that had gentled hurt dear, he sat and spoke quiet reassurance. You are not alone. No matter how dreadful the evil inside, someone who cares sits beside you. With no decent shred of comfort to give, Finlayer closed his strong fingers over the old man's and abided. As he had for the tree, he offered up all he owned, the undying renewal that clothed the green glens, steeped in patience to outlast all strife. In time, the king quieted. His raucous breath slowed. The fidgeting tremors released his aged limbs. 
he lay like a figure of chalk on the pillows, while the rhythm of his labored heart missed its beat and finally wearied and stopped. Finlaire looked up. He saw the glassy stare of dead eyes and understood that Chalder's doom was upon him. He released the slack hands, stood up, then stepped back, while the jaw of the corpse gaped open. The last wisp of breath sighed out of slack lungs, disgorging the wraith of the fiend. It emerged as a pallid, luminous mist, writhing like smoke through the darkness. Aware all at once that the candles had snuffed, Finlaire gave ground before it. He retreated until he slammed into the wall, as no doubt his victimized forebears had done on countless nights before this one. The wraith winnowed toward him. He watched it advance, his pulse raced with dread. Yet where others had shouted or screamed curses or whimpered in paralyzed fear, his own lips stayed sealed. Finlaire made no sound. With every last fiber of will he possessed, he clung to determined silence. The fiend came on, an animate, swirling mist that bridged the black air in between. Finlaire pressed against stone, as helpless as his predecessors, while the abhorrent coil snaked in to claim him. The touch, when it came, was numbingly cold. Here, many another royal victim had quieted. Battered past all resistance, a man might let go in surrender, grateful for the discovery that his defeat would be softly painless. The wraith's entry would sear out all feeling sensation and seal the mind in dreamless oblivion. Others fought, hammering their fists bloody in useless rage that their struggle bought no last salvation. Still others wept blinding tears of self-pity and cried out in wounded loss. Villaire held still, without fight, without sound. Yet his calm held no shred of acceptance. The denial he shaped, as Chalder's wraith enveloped him, was not the outrage born of defeat. He held nothing else but the flame of his love, for life, for freedom, for the unassailable dignity wrapped up in his memory of balsam. Eyes closed, lips shut, lungs clamped against the need to inhale, he clasped the acorn and cherished its limitless promise of hope. Yet a man can stop breathing for only so long. Rung dizzy, sucked into the blank ebb toward faintness, Finlaire knew the urge to survive must eventually compel his starving lungs to seek air. When consciousness faltered and reflex resurged, the wraith of the fiend would seize entry. Its freezing draft would flow into his chest, then lace through his blood and savage his heart. This, a forester who lived by his traps, understood. Like the constricted oak in the garden, he must honor life. He would pay the price of a twisted existence, but that ending would not be eternal. There would be a seed sometime that would find new ground, a king's son who survived to win freedom. Left nothing else, he must concede that his single failure did not bring defeat for all time. He hung his last thought on that chance for renewal, the heart's peace of the wood, that did not own strife or acknowledge destruction as final. 
while his mind dimmed and the wraith twined about him, and the storm cracked and slammed with unbridled fury, he remembered the maimed tree choked in the garden, and its fathomless strength of endurance. Hope was an acorn enclosed in his hand. As his will broke and his burning chest shuddered, and the wraith's poisoned presence swirled in on the air drawn through his contorted throat, the oak tree gave him, like a perfect jewel, the rooted acceptance of its own being. Man and tree melded. Human flesh acquired the staid hardiness of wood, and blood flowed, sap slow, thick as syrup. The girdling pain of cold, iron-cased ankles that forgot every quickened sensation of movement. Thought froze, and awareness knew only itself, a spiraling force that flowed with the seasons, to grow and to reach for the light. The awareness of a tree did not know terror. It did not feel passion or rage or discontent. It tendered no coin but the gift of its ongoing right to existence. There the wraith found no pain to exploit, no raw nerve to torment, no desire to balk. However it groped, it encountered no restless need to haze into submission. Stuck fast, nailed still, encircled by life that stayed true to itself within a strangling ring of cold iron, the fiend's hunger could find no resistance to grapple. Man and tree joined for the space of one breath, no more than the gap between heartbeats. On that crystalline instant, the wraith was pinned down. It howled, imprisoned in calm. It battered against the unbreakable dignity held in the latent spark in an acorn. Life for life's sake framed the only defense its destructive will could not breach. Given nothing to dominate, the wraith that had fed upon Chalder's princes lost its power and faded, and finally snuffed out of existence. Outside the king's palace, the storm reached its peak. Lightning flickered and cracked. The darkness blazed white, seared across by the wild force of the elements. The shaft that spread down struck and split the old oak. Its untamed might splintered bark and limb and warped wood, and unleashed an explosion of blazing fragments. The iron bench glowed sullen red, and then steamed in the quench of the deluge. Within the closed bedchamber, Finlair collapsed. He sprawled motionless under the shadow of night, the acorn still cradled within the palm of his defiant hand. He lay so as dawn broke, and the early light pierced through the clouds and flooded the glass of the casements. Voices approached from the corridor outside, strident over the wails of a child. Finlair woke to that sound. He stirred and beheld the corpse of his father settled at peace on the bed. Then the door was wrenched open. As Gurman strode through with the terrified offering to further his wicked alliance, the prince who was Forrester was up on his feet. Nor was he calm any longer. Gurman quailed before the bared face of his rage. Cowering, he stepped back and hastily passed off the child to one of the guardsmen. The fiend's wreath, he stammered. Childer's curse on our lineage. Broken, 
snapped Finlayer, a man of few words. You are left with your conscience, and with a brother you owe the right of a decent funeral. At Gurman's back, the henchman who was left clutching the child dropped, shaken, onto his knees. His submission was followed, shame-faced, by others, until not a guard was left standing. Long live the king! Finlayer stared at them, startled. Then he shook his head. Choose someone else worthy. I've already worn the only crown that has any natural meaning. While Gurriman regarded him, speechlessly stupefied, Finlayer let go and laughed. Free to walk out, he would leave for the forest and fulfill a promise by planting an acorn. What a hero. I love characters like that. So human, yet the kind of human we all aspire to be. Before I get too misty-eyed and start rambling on, let's move on to our second story for today. It is a fantastical tale called Coma by Jean Wolfe. Mr. Wolfe is a prolific short story writer and novelist and has won many science fiction and fantasy literary awards. Wolfe is most famous for The Book of the New Sun, the first part of his solar cycle, we here at Farfetched Fables asked him for a short biographical piece to read out on air, and he sent us this. Lives have shapes, and mine has been a circle. I grew up in Texas and took a job far away, where I was soon lonely. Impelled by loneliness, I married a beautiful girl whom I came to love deeply. We had children. I found myself anything but lonely in the midst of a large family. One by one our children moved away until the two of us were left alone. My lovely wife grew ill. I nursed her as long as I could, and when I could no longer care for her, watched her fade and die in a nursing home. Now I am alone once more, once around, and we get off. This story is read by Anthony Babington, an old friend here at Farfetched Fables. Anthony describes himself as a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently lives in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. Ladies and gentlemen, Coma by Jean Wolfe. The news whispered by his radio this morning was the same as the news when he and Mona had gone to bed. The city had topped the crest, and everything was flat and wonderful, if only for a day or two. You're flat yourselves, he told it softly, and switched it off. Mona was still asleep when he had shaved and dressed, her swollen belly at rest on the mattress, her face full of peace, and her slow inhalations loud to his acute hearing. He grabbed a breakfast bar on his way through the kitchen and wondered how the hell he could start the car without waking her up. There was a ball in the driveway a chewed-up rubber ball some dog had stopped chasing when it had stopped running. He picked it up and bounced it off the concrete. It bounced a few more times and settled down to rest again, as round as Mona, though not quite as happy. He tossed it into the car and followed it. Press the accelerator, let it up, twist the key. The little engine purred to life, as if it knew its work would be easy today. The suburb passed in a familiar blur. From the tollway, he eyed the tall buildings that marked the center of the city, 
The last crest had come before he was born, the crest of a wholly different wave, something he found hard to imagine. But he knew that not one of those spume-catchers had been built then. Now the city might have to pay for its pride and the convenience of having so many offices close together. Pay with its very existence, perhaps. The brass inclinometer he had bought when he had foreseen the danger the year before was waiting for him when he reached his desk, solidly screwed to the desktop, its long axis coinciding exactly with the direction of motion of the plate. He squinted at the needle, and at last got out a magnifying glass. Zero. It seemed supernatural, a portent. A memo taped to his monitor warned him that the new angle, which will soon grow steep, would be the reverse of what it called the accustomed angle. Everything was to be secured a second time with that new angle in mind. Workmen would make the rounds of all offices. He was asked to cooperate for the good of the company. He tossed the memo, woke his processor, and opened Mona's private dream house instead. His design was waiting there to be tinkered with, as it would not have been if anyone in authority had found it. Okay, if I look at your gadget? It was Phil, and Phil looked without waiting for his permission. Flat, Phil said happily, and laughed. The plate's flat. First time in my life. The last time, too. He closed Mona's dream house. For either one of us. Phil rubbed his hands. It'll all be different. Entirely different. A new slant on everything. Want to go up to the roof, old buddy? Should be a great view. He shook his head. It would be very different indeed, he reflected when Phil had left. If the plate overturned, as it very well might... If the building did not break up when it hit the water, it would point down and would be submerged. Water would short out the electrical equipment, probably at once, and in any event, the elevators would no longer operate. Rooms and corridors might, or might not, hold some air for a few hours, most down on what were now the lower levels. He might, perhaps, break a window and so escape. If he lived long enough to rise to street level, the edge of the plate and air would be, what, thirty miles away? Forty? Next day, the inclinometer was no longer on zero, and the chewed ball he had left on his desk had rolled to one side. As he wrote letters and called contacts, as he began to sketch the outline of his next project, he watched the space between the end of the needle and the hair-thin zero line grow. By Friday, the needle was no longer near zero, and there were intervening marks which he did not trouble to read— because on Friday, at not quite eleven o'clock of that bright and still almost level morning, Edith Benson called to say that Mona had gone into labor while they chatted across the fence, and that she had driven Mona to the hospital. He took some time off. By the time he returned to his desk, the needle was no more than a pencil's width from the peg. It seemed to him to tremble there, and he was reminded of his conversation with the proprietor of the little shop in which he had bought the inclinometer. He had asked why the scale went no further and the proprietor had grinned, showing beautifully regular teeth that had certainly been false. "'Because you won't be there to look at it if it goes farther than that,' the proprietor had told him. A note taped to his desk informed him that he had neglected to set the brake on his swivel chair. It had pushed open the door of his office and had crashed into Mrs. Patterson's desk. He apologized to her in person. At quitting time, the space between the point of the needle and the peg would admit three of his business cards— but not four. That evening, he and Mona sat up until their son's next feeding, talking about colleges and professions. It would be up to Adrian to choose, they agreed on that. But would not their own attitudes, the training they gave him, and their very table talk influence Adrian's choices? 
At ten, they kissed, looked in on Adrian, and kissed again. Good night, honey, Mona said, and he, knowing that she did not want him to watch. Good night, darling. As he combed his hair the next morning, he found that his thoughts, which should have been focused on work, were full of Adrian. And the plate. More and taller buildings would go up when this was over. More and taller buildings would be built, that was to say, if there was anyone left alive to plan and build them. His firm would have a part of that, and would profit by it. Those profits would contribute to his profit-sharing plan. He shrugged, rinsed his comb, and put it away. The new and wonderful house that he himself had designed, with a den and a sewing room and enough bedrooms for five children, would not be quite so far off then. At work, he found the needle not quite so near the peg as it had been. Three business cards slipped into the opening easily. Four would just clear. Up on the roof, a little knot of his co-workers were marveling at the vastness of the tossing green waters that stretched to the horizon in every direction. The secretary, with a gold pince-nez, gripped his arm. I come up here every morning. We'll never be able to see anything like this again, and today will be the last day we're this high up. He nodded, trying to look serious and pleased. The secretary with the gold pince-nez was the CEO's, and although he had seen her often, he had never spoken to her, much less been spoken to. An executive vice president laid large, soft hands on his shoulders. Take a good long look, young man. If it sticks with you, you'll think big. We always need people who think big. He said, I will, sir. Yet he found himself looking at the people who looked, and not at the boundless ocean. There was the freckled kid from the mailroom who whistled, and over there the pretty blonde who never smiled. All alone at the very edge of the gently slanting roof was old Parsons. Hadn't Parsons retired? Clearly he had not, and he had set up a tarnished brass telescope on a tripod. A telescope through which he peered down into the watery abyss that had opened before the city, not out at the grandeur of the horizon. Something in the water? Parsons straightened up. Sure is. What is it? Gnarled fingers stroked bristling, almost invisible white whiskers. That, Parsons said slowly, is what I'm trying to figure out, young feller. A whale? he asked. Parsons shook his head. Nope, taint that. You might think it'd be easy to figure with a good glass, but taint. Parsons stepped aside. You want to look? He bent as Parsons had and made a slight adjustment to the focus. It was a city, or a town at least, nestled now in the trough. Narrow streets, roofs that seemed to be largely of red tiles, a white spire rose above its houses and shops, and for an instant, only an instant, it seemed to him that he had caught the gleam of the gold cross atop the spire. He straightened up, swallowed as though his throat and stomach had some part in absorbing what he had just seen, and bent to look again. Something white fluttered and vanished above one red roof. A pigeon, he felt certain. There were pigeons as well as gulls there, circling above the houses and shops. Pigeons that no doubt nested in the eaves and scavenged the town's streets for whatever food might be found in them. Been looking on my old computer at home, Parsons said. There's views of various places on there, if you know where to look. My guess is Les Sables d'Olonne. Mind now, I'm not saying I'm right. Just my guess, I said. You got one? He shook his head. If... It'll be out of the way, won't it? 
by the time we get there, the next wave will pick it up first, won't it? As he spoke, he discovered that he did not believe a word of it. Can't say. Parsons scratched his bristling jaw. Pretty slow, generally, going up. Sliding down's faster than blazes, and you go a long way. Turning his head, he spat. We're heading right at it. If it wasn't... If it was still in the way... And we hit... Might bust our plate. I don't know. I phoned up one of them geologists. They're supposed to know all about that. He said he didn't know neither. Depend on how fast each was going. Only you ought to think about this, young feller. Ain't a building on ours that could stand it if we bump them with much speed at all. Knock them flat, every last one of them. Reluctantly, he nodded. You're right, it will. May I ask who you called, sir? Dr. Lance, his name was. Said don't talk about it, only you don't have any right to give me orders. Old Parsons appeared to hesitate. Won't matter to me. I'll be gone long before. You might still be around, though. Healthy young fellow like you? Y yes, he said. Images of the baby, of Adrian, filled his mind. He continued to talk almost by reflex. I, I asked about the geologist because I know a geologist. Slightly. I've gotten to know him. His name isn't Lance, though. It's Sutton. Martin Sutton. He lives one street over from us. He had debated the matter with himself for more than an hour before telephoning Sutton. You know some things I want to know, Marty, he said, with when the preliminaries were complete. And I'm going to pick your brain, if you'll let me. This city or town or whatever it is in the trough. Are we going to hit it? There was a lengthy silence before Sutton said, You know about it, too? Correct. They've kept it off TV. They'll keep it out of the papers if they can. I wonder how many people know. I have no idea. Are we, Marty? That's not my field. I'm a geologist, okay? I study the plate. But you know. Are we? Sutton sighed. Probably. How'd you find out? I looked through a telescope, that's all. There's a town down there. Or a small city. Take your pick. It's got fields and gardens around it. What are the odds? Sutton's shrug was almost audible. One in ten, maybe? One in ten of hitting? No, one in ten of missing. They were calling it one in five yesterday. You mustn't tell anybody I've told you, okay? I won't. But they told you, so you could tell them whether our plate would break? Another silence, this one nearly as long as the first. Then... Yeah... They did, but that wasn't the main reason. What's the other thing? It might help if you'd tell me. For God's sake, keep it under your hat. Even over the phone, Sutton sounded desperate. I will, I swear. What is it? They wanted to talk about the feasibility of breaking up the other plate in advance. You know, the one we're going to hit. I understand. Go on. Suppose we could do it. Suppose we could break it into three pieces. 
they'd drift apart, and we might not hit all three. He nodded slowly to himself. And even if we did, three small shocks wouldn't be as damaging as one big one. Right. Sutton seemed a little less nervous now. They'll try to prepare for them, too, of course. We've got a crew going through our offices, double-bolting everything. Steel bolts to hold the legs of the desks, and they're screwing our file cabinets to the walls as well as the floor. I was watching it a few minutes ago. I suppose we'll get that here, too, Sutton said. But it hasn't started yet. Your superiors don't know? I guess not. I see. I suppose mine have been asked whether it would be practical to reinforce certain buildings. One more question, please, Marty, and it may be the last one. Would what they asked you about be feasible? Breaking up the plate we're going to hit like that? I think so. Probably. Listen, I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I'd like to get it off my chest. First, I've had to assume that their plate's pretty much like ours. Ours is the only one we're familiar with. Sure. Assuming that it is, we'd have to drill into it and plant charges about a hundred feet down. I said the people there aren't going to stand still for that, and they said they'd take them by surprise. It's not very big, okay? A thousand men, well-trained and heavily armed, hydrofoils that will launch when we're close. I'll probably be one of the men on the boats. Everyone else here is older, and they'll be old men by the time it happens. I'm not much older than you are. I'll still be active. What about somebody younger, somebody who hasn't graduated yet? There won't be anybody like that. Sutton's voice went flat, stripped of all emotion. I might as well tell you this, too. It's the kind of thing that can't be kept secret. The university's dropped geology. They've closed the whole department, effective immediately. That night, over wieners and sauerkraut, he told Mona, I promised a person who trusted me that I wouldn't talk about this, but you're going to have to know. When he had finished outlining the situation, she said, But won't it work? This man you talked to said it would. Probably not. He paused, listening to the trees murmur and the wind that would soon become a years-long gale, the wind of the city's swift descent. They must surely see us coming at them, just as we see them in our path. They'll start preparing, and both sides have ten or fifteen years to prepare in. They can arm everyone who's willing to fight and put up obstacles to keep our people from landing. I think we can count on both those. They could break up their plate for us. He nodded. Yes, they could. We could break up ours, too. Do you think the government will? For a long moment, Mona stared at him. At last she said, How horrible! No, of course they won't. But we could do it ourselves. The idea had come to him full flower during his long call to Sutton. He had seized it eagerly, and hoped now to inspire her to an equal acceptance. We could plant charges that would exploit known weaknesses in our plate. The force of the explosions would start our piece moving away from the city, 
and out of the collision path the city's on now. But, darling, Adrian would have a future. Don't you see, Mona? We wouldn't take just this residential neighborhood, but a piece of the infrastructure big enough to be economically viable. We could make things for ourselves, then. Make things to trade, grow gardens and fish. That town the city's going to hit, French or Belgian or whatever it is, people survive there. They even prosper. I've bounced this off a man over on the next street, a geologist. He agrees it might be possible, and he's coming over to talk about it. Bumpers. We could build bumpers, things with springs in them, or, or big sacks full of air. He shook his head. Nothing we could build would have much effect on a mass as great as the plates. And if we succeeded in slowing it down much, we wouldn't. The wave would break over us and drown everybody. But, Mona looked desperate. But, honey, he glanced at his watch. Sutton's coming at eight. You won't have to feed him, but coffee and cookies might be nice, or, or cake, something like that. Okay. Mona's voice was scarcely audible. An hour later, she said, Won't you please stop combing your hair with your fingers like that and pacing up and down and up and down? For the twentieth time, he looked at his watch. Sutton could be here right now. He could. Mona conceded. If he'd come at least ten minutes early, honestly, I'm, I'm going to get hysterical. Sit down and relax, or, or go outside where you can see his headlights as soon as he turns onto the street. Please? If I start screaming, I'll wake Adrian. Won't you, pretty please, honey? For me? He nodded, suddenly grateful, and discovered that he had been on the point of running his fingers through his hair again. Okay. I'll do that. I won't come back in until he gets here. The wind had turned the night cold. He walked out to the street. How many charges would they need? And how big would each have to be? Would they have to enlist a chemist to make the explosives? Dynamite or whatever? To his right, looming white above the treetops, though far more distant, he could only just glimpse the boiling crest of the wave. Those trees were wrongly slanted now. Come morning, they would find themselves pointed away from the sun. He chuckled softly. It could not be often that any smug suburban trees received such an unpleasant surprise. When he returned to the house to sit on the stoop, Mona had drawn the blinds. She was being overly cautious, he decided, but he could not find it in his heart to blame her. Out at the curb again and still nervous, he held his breath as headlights turned off Miller Road. They crept up the sloping street as though the driver were checking house numbers, and then, incredibly, miraculously, swung into his driveway. Sutton climbed out, and they shook hands. I hadn't forgotten where you live, Sutton said, but this new angle has me a little disoriented. He nodded. All of us are. I think that may work in our favor. Maybe you're right. The wind snatched away Sutton's baseball cap. Sutton grabbed for it, missing by a foot or more. Help me find that, will you? I'd hate to lose it. They had searched the bushes for a minute or more when Sutton straightened up and said, Something wrong? What's the matter with you? He had straightened up already. Sirens. He pointed east, northeast. 
and after a momentary hesitation, north. Don't you hear them? Sutton shook his head. No, I don't. Well, I do. Three or four cars, and they're getting closer. One by one, the sirens grew louder and abruptly fell silent. For almost the last time, he ran nervous fingers through his hair. What's up? Sutton began. If you... Before the third word, he had turned and sprinted for the door. It was locked. His key turned the lock and the bolt clicked back, but the night bolt was engaged. Once only, his shoulder struck the unyielding wood. By that time, the first police car had turned the corner on two screaming wheels, and it was too late to hide. Chillingly cold war feel, isn't it? It doesn't hurt that Antony does such a great job of reading it. And that is, unfortunately, the end of our thirteenth show. I have really enjoyed this one. I hope you did too. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. You all know what that means. And don't forget to tell anyone who will listen to you about us and how amazing our stories are. My thanks go out to all of our authors and narrators for their generosity with material and time. We all do this voluntarily, just for the love of the stories. If you're feeling generous, please feel free to donate a little something. The buttons are easy to find on our website, and everything goes into the pot to keep the District of Wonders going, bringing you great fiction every week. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and remember to kiss a kitten or a puppy this week. Everyone needs a bit of fubsy every once in a while. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 